How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the JEDcast Dialogues with Changemakers. I'm your host, Jed Liano, Mayor Pro Tem for the City of Claremont, and also the chair of the CLU MPA Programs Advisory Council. And with me today is my co-host, the chair of the MPA program at Claremont Lincoln University, Dr. Audrey Jordan. Audrey, good to have you with us today. How are you? Hey, Jed, I am excited, just like you, and I'm just feeling so privileged on behalf of CLU to be here and to have the opportunity to engage in our podcast with one of our MPA council members. Um, this council is amazing in terms of its diversity, the experience and expertise and the passion that each of these council members brings around promoting more equity and social justice in our communities. So the fact that uh, we get to start, I get to do this with you, I I'm ready. Let's go for it. Thank you, Dr. Jordan. Awesome to be here. And we have a fantastic guest, one of the members of our CLU MPA Advisory Council, Sarah Dussault. Sarah has uh, a very robust resume and has worked over at LA City Hall for Mayor Jim Hahn, Mayor Eric Garcetti, Garcetti LA City Council Member David Ryu. She is on the commission for the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority. She's on the steering committee for, uh, for the Committee for Greater LA, the authors of the report, No Going Back LA. Uh, and so with us today is Sarah Dussault. Sarah, wonderful to have you with us. Good afternoon. So happy to be here. It's a treat. Sarah, um, we've got a lot to get to because CLU um, really is so blessed to have you on board um, in, on our council. And, you know, before we even get started about your work in policy, what you're up to for the Committee for Greater LA, um, I really want to hear from you. You know, I read in your bio, you, you went to Yale, you went to UCLA Law, you were a practicing attorney. How do you go from practicing law and then into a career of public service? Tell me how that happens for you. Well, I had the phenomenal opportunity and honor to clerk on the Ninth Circuit for a judge um, by the name of uh, Kay McLean Wardlaw. And um, I was one of her first clerks uh, when she was appointed to the Ninth Circuit. And uh, that, you know, it, a clerk is a 24 hour job and you're able to work on a variety of issues. Um, and it's so exciting. And in that time, I also got to know her husband who was chairing Jim Hahn's campaign for mayor. And he said, you know, why do you wanna go work at a large law firm when you can change uh, the world um, or at least change our region and come work on this campaign and be the director of policy? So that's what I did. So Judge Wardlaw's husband pulled you away from, from practicing he law? He did. He mm. said, no need to make money. Just come over <laughs> here and, uh, and build a life of service. And, you know, he, he had gotten to know me pretty well. And that was exactly the right fit for me. I'm one of 11 children. I'm the eighth child. Um, I grew up in Sierra Madre. We moved away when I was in ninth grade, but... I grew up until ninth grade in Sierra Madre in the San Gabriel Valley and in this huge, you know, Irish Catholic family and was raised on the principles of service. And that's just, you know, built into my uh, upbringing. And so 
when I saw this opportunity, I was thrilled and I never looked back. I love being of service and, you know, it's, it's been a really interesting opportunity to, to be able to give back to our community. You know, uh, Sarah, there is a, um, there is a recurring theme in a lot of your policy work, a lot of your work at LA city hall, and then on the loss of commission and, um, committee for greater LA, a clear focus on the issues of homelessness and affordable housing. And what pulled you into that work? What got you started in that field? And, and what was the precursor to making that a focus of your policy career? Sure. Well, you know, and I started out as a generalist, you know, I'm a, a generalist in terms of policy. I've worked on everything from the consent decree to reform the Los Angeles Police Department to uh, climate change initiatives. But my passion for housing and homelessness is very personal. My brother um, was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he hit his early 20s. Up until that point, he'd been, you know, star football player, star everything, uh, super smart person, and just a crazy great at math. And uh, he went off to college, and um, you know, he just had a, a break. And ever since then, has been experiencing homelessness and struggling with his mental health in the Los Angeles County region on and off over the last 20 years. And so to be honest, to be of service in the public realm gives me an opportunity to do for others what oftentimes I'm not able to do for my brother because uh, schizophrenia is a tenacious illness and it often tricks the person into thinking they're just fine. So um, he is currently in housing which is wonderful, um, in a group home in uh, South Los Angeles right now. And, you know, I'm happy about that, but it's a lifelong struggle. And the reality is, is that our most vulnerable residents who are vulnerable for any sort of reason, whether it's struggling with mental health, struggling with racist housing policies, it can, it runs the gamut, but our most vulnerable residents experience homelessness more than anyone else. And uh, folks get pushed out of housing and are, you know, unsheltered on our streets. So I am determined that somehow this man-made problem is going to be turned around in my lifetime. You know, that's so fascinating that you bring up your own personal story. Thank you for sharing that. I'm really curious to know with, with so much attention and the spotlight being put on on our issues in housing and homelessness, especially being exposed during COVID, the weaknesses in our system that we have, you know, right now is a really scary time to be in government. There appears to be this really strong distrust of government. And it's easy sometimes to feel like we're losing faith in one another. Is this phenomenon new? What do you think is the path forward for us in leadership to restore trust and faith in policy-making bodies, in administrations that implement policy? I, I don't think it's new. Um, and I wouldn't call myself a history buff, but I do certainly try to learn from history. And there are other moments in our history where we've had similar polarizing moments. Right. Um, so I do think, you know, there's the populist movements at the turn of the 19th century, and there was the, the boomerang of 
going back from, you know, during reconstruction where we had, we were on a path to really extending civil rights to all Americans. And then we completely contracted and lost that momentum. And so I do think that polarization has existed in our past. We're certainly in a, a really difficult moment of it. And I, I just think that we can can get it back through communication, through uh, storytelling. You know, I, we're going to talk in a, a little bit about the No Going Back report. One of our goals through that report was in order to lift up the principles that we value and we believe you know, quite honestly, the majority of Angelinos and people in our entire Southern California region value uh, that, you know, that there really is, when we lift up these principles, we really can gain momentum to build consensus around, you know, making a path forward for all of our residents. And I, I just genuinely believe that's true if we um, we can rebuild trust, um, both in government and in institutions, when we do the work and do the work together and really try to listen to one another. So we have a whole aspect of this report that's really about changing hearts and minds, whether it's through storytelling or art, just creating connection. Right. Um, one of the challenges of the pandemic is a loss of connection, but quite honestly, we were losing connection even before the pandemic hit. Right. Uh, Sarah, um, speaking of, you know, doing the work and, you know, putting in the work before we move on to, to your, to the work um, of the committee, can you tell me, you know, a long history, LA city hall, if you could pick one victory that you're most proud of in your career in LA city politics, what would it be? And what did you learn from it? Well, I mean, I, that is hard uh, to pick one. I sort of always remember it, it rings in uh, my ear. So in uh, city council, there are 15 council members. And when you get a unanimous vote, the clerk always whispers into the microphone, 15 eyes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's always just, it's sort of just the best sound. And I, I remember getting that or hearing that sound when I was working with then council president, Eric Garcetti, before he became mayor. And we passed the nation's first eviction moratorium for people in single family homes. So if you recall in the great recession, the target of uh, the recession um, and the sort of bottom fell out of the economy with respect to mortgages and all of these single family homes were falling into foreclosure. Well, many single family homes in this region are rented uh, right. and are tenants in those homes. And I actually, at that time, my brother was living in one of them. It was a shared housing environment and the house went into foreclosure and all the tenants were told to leave. And he had had a, a lot of stability up until that point. And quite honestly, I remember that eviction as a real turning point in terms of him losing his stability for years. It took us years and years to get him back. And honestly, he was lost. He was wandering right. the streets of, of Southern California. And so that victory was both, you know, personally and professionally to 
established that eviction moratorium and then it was copied um, nationwide. It's, you know, now that we're in a new economic recession and a new pandemic, it may not seem as significant as it was at the time, but it was a really big deal. And I was really proud. That's wonderful. I just love the sound of 15 eyes. <laughs> that, the, yeah. the, the fact that you recall the sound oh, of that. Oh, yeah. Is... It's that, that magic, that magic sound. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, well, you know, uh, one of the things I'm so excited to get to talk to you about is the work that you've done on the Committee for Greater LA. And before I get into the No Going Back LA report, why don't you tell the listeners, what is the Committee for Greater LA? How was it formed and how'd you get involved? So the committee was formed by a philanthropy in Los Angeles that really immediately when COVID hit, um, stood up and said, we've got to make sure that we're laying the groundwork for recovery. And there was in our initial meeting, there was an, an initial conversation. So in the group, there is it le again, led by philanthropy, Fred Ali at Weingart, and now Miguel Santana, who's now um, the CEO at Weingart, but at the time was tapped to be the chair of this committee. And many other philanthropic institutions were a part of it. Balmer Group, Balmer Foundation, the Hilton Foundation, several other California Community Foundation. And then they tapped several of us in either nonprofit or government roles to be a part of it. Myself as chair of the LASA Commission, my friend Jacqueline Wagner, who was head of the Southern California region for the Enterprise Foundation and works on housing opportunities and several other folks um, in different fields. And then we together said, you know, recovery, that word recovery is just not enough. Um, because we don't want to go back to the way it was um, right, right. in terms of if you're talking about the crisis of homelessness or the crisis of housing or the crisis of the Black experience in uh, the city and county of LA. And so it was my friend Jacqueline who said, yeah, there's no going back. And that that immediately became, oh, that's the name of the report. It must be called No Going Back. Um and uh, from that moment on, our goal was to provide some, what we hoped was deep thinking around these issues to lift up recommendations and most importantly, principles that would help drive the COVID recovery because we knew our leaders were so busy with the day-to-day -day response to right. the pandemic. That's right. And then as we convened very quickly thereafter, you know, the racial reckoning across the nation happened and that made it even more clear, even though equity and race was the driving force behind our very first meeting, it just made it even more clear that we needed to lift up the black experience in our region and to really lift up how to embed anti-racism into, you know, recovery policy. So Sarah, let me make sure I understand this right. The Committee for Greater LA is formed by philanthropy and it has already convened and then the summer protests begin. Right. After you've already met. Right. Okay, so can you go, what is it like when you've already been meeting, you've already been talking and then boom, there's the summer of 2020. How does that change the room? How does the dialogue change? Like, what was the impact of that 
in that committee? I mean, it was powerful. We had we have many people on the committee who live the black experience every day, and to who shared, you know, their personal stories and personal trauma, and it was incredibly powerful and personal and moving, and it was such a motivator to galvanize. Uh, the policies that we were working on. It just gave us all the more, you know, wind in our sails to say, this is our mission. Um, and it it crystallized our, what we ended up lifting up, which is our, our 10 important principles for the reinvention of Los Angeles. It crystallized it for us. The number one principle is to address anti-Black racism in all its forms. And that I'm so grateful that I was a part of this experience because I can't, there are no words. And it was, it's been, it's really given me, I think, new energy and hopefully new wisdom to approach this work. Thank you. That's, that's really uh, an extraordinary intersection of, of events in time to come together um, the work of the committee is already so powerful, the experience and the opportunity to, to put pen to paper on this, and then to have the, um, the, the summer of 2000 steer and guide your work. That, that just sounds to me incredible. Okay, Audrey, you know, we're about halfway through this interview with Sarah Dussault, and wow. I got to tell you, it is a really fascinating conversation. I'd love to share with you what, what I found interesting and then get your thoughts to hear how you felt about the interview. But, you know, having all of this work she has done on homelessness in L.A. County, what really brought it home for me in this interview is the story of her brother, how her own brother experienced homelessness. And the exact words she said is, I get to do all of this work to do for others what I wasn't able to do for my own brother. Um, That's a really powerful moment. I mean, yeah. Not only do you feel the humility in that, but this is close to home for her. Yeah, I felt that too, Jed. I was like, wow. And and speaking of personal, you know, when you clarified, you mean, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You all were working on this already before George Floyd happened. And then George Floyd happened. And it was such a clarifying moment for people when folks were sharing and you heard from Black members of your group, their stories and how that just really codified everything for people, clarified for folks. This is That's the work right. we got to do. Yeah, I, I could just imagine, you know, being in that room. You you put yeah. together the Committee for Greater LA. It is a yeah. lot of leaders in government, business, nonprofit, yeah. philanthropy, and and then you know, boom, the summer yeah. of twenty twenty happens, and the room is now changed it's human it's like right. all it's, the titles all the roles you know it's like whoa right suddenly <laughs> it gets very real yes. and um that that's just a fascinating moment to hear about um but i have to tell you so far this interview has not disappointed this has been an incredible conversation oh it has yeah i can't wait to hear hear more well you know uh, let's move on to to the second half or the second part of our conversation with sarah Dusso. And so now I, you know, Sarah, I really would love to hear from you. The report is online. I've got some things in there that I really want to ask you about, 
but I'd like to throw it to my co-host, Dr. Jordan. Uh, if there's anything you'd like to ask about no going back. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much. I could just sit here and listen to the two of you. I was just just enraptured. But I'm glad to have a chance, Sarah, to, to ask you the fabulous work that USC and UCLA did together with the data to, to create yeah. this report. That's going to be really intriguing for our students. So I'm thinking of how I can help through your experience of wisdom, our students appreciate what it takes to get policy initiative together like this that cuts across housing, education, homelessness, economics, the whole spectrum. When policies are usually dealt out in silos and pieces. So if you could say a little bit to give us our students some insight and, and others listening, what, what kind of innovation it takes to do that? You know, it's um, this the type of innovation has actually been talked about uh, by several good government folks. I actually think of um, the former governor of, of Maryland, O'Malley mm -hmm. Miller, where you have cross sector collaboration is through basically constant communication. So we met for about seven months every single Friday for 90 minutes, for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And in our steering group, as I said, there were folks from a different subject matter expertise. So myself, it's focused on homelessness, but there were folks focused on youth empowerment. There were folks focused on labor, a lot of different experts in the room, folks focused on education, on health. And so I think that what is vital for that type of approach is to gather together folks with different types of expertise and create a, a you know a trusting environment where people feel free to you know communicate and and really address different policy concerns so you can get perspective from these different uh, subject matters expertise on on that policy um, and I do want to lift up you know you mentioned UCLA and USC I I didn't in my intro sort of highlight the fact that you know, the two rival institutions in our, or one of the two rival institutions in sure. our region, it was really an honor to have Gary Segura and Manuel Pastor, and then each of their teams of professors at, at um, both of their institutions really give up themselves in order to lead in this effort. And the other thing that was really important in one of our principles, and I think useful for your students to know, is that we really tried to make sure that data told the story. Mm -hmm. And this group was really one of the first groups to look at the disparate impact of the pandemic, the disparate impact of the shutdown, of the mm -hmm. economic impact on people, um, the disparate impact of death. You know, thinking about just in terms of the age of the person who passes away and the age range and looking at in their breadwinning years. So this was the first group to really lift up that, you know, Latino breadwinners were overwhelmingly being disparately uh, impacted by death and COVID. Mm. And what's that gonna mean in terms of recovery mm. when you've lost the breadwinner for the family? 
And I, I don't know if you saw 60 Minutes did a, a poignant episode last night, just talking to a cross-section of a few families who lost people to COVID who were breadwinners, you know, who are in their late 40s to early 50s. And that impact is pretty, it's a, besides the grief and the loss, there also is the fact that their lives will never be the same. You know, as one family was describing, 80% of their income is now gone. And that in this region, in the Southern California region, is primarily happening to people of color. So we felt this deep responsibility in the Committee for Greater LA to really take a look at that and think about what that means in terms of how funding should be spent uh, for economic recovery, in terms of how we should approach policies around economic recovery. I mean, in terms of job loss, there was one job loss reporting period where nearly everyone in that reporting period who lost their job were women. Mm. Wow. Mm. Um, and so the disproportionate impact on women of this current of the pandemic plus the economic recession. So it's, I think that I really do recommend for your students to take a look at the report. Indeed. We really tried to objectively let data tell the story mm -hmm. um, and to look at how both COVID itself in terms of infection rates, COVID deaths, but also economic impact was affecting people differently in different neighborhoods and in different communities. Thank you for that, Sarah. Sarah, I really love you know, the fact that you bring it back to the data. The story this report tells is what do the data say? And one of the clearest things to me that stood out in the report is this tremendous deficit of affordable housing we have in LA County. And then how that seems to be driving the homelessness numbers. What The really scary thing that stood out to me was despite the fact that 22,000 people were placed from being unsheltered into housing, we still had a pipeline of people entering homelessness that far exceeded our capacity to provide housing for. Why do you think it's so hard to build affordable housing? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, one of the reasons is that I often opine that where redlining left off, um, because redlining, which was the practice of um, both the federal government through Fannie Mae and lending institutions to not lend in certain neighborhoods of color in order to promote homeownership amongst people who were not of color, that practice was banned. Where I think we then failed was that what happened next was honestly a, a wave of downzoning. So in the city of Los Angeles, for example, it was zoned for about 10 million people about three decades ago. Mm -hmm. And we've downzoned now to 4 million people. And so by downzone, you mean giving I mean, more our restrictive- land use, Yeah, our land use policies have- changed over time to not allow for um, density. Now, I want to be careful when I say the word density, because if you've been reading, like there was a fabulous story in the New York Times, and the LA Times has also covered this, about why the pandemic has ravaged parts of Los Angeles County. 
And the primary reason is overcrowding in housing. And that is different than in having a land use policy that promotes density in housing. Density means you know, being able to have several units of housing um, on a particular uh, plot of land. It does not mean overcrowding of housing. Right. And our region is actually far more overcrowded than most other parts of the country. So when I was lifting up the eviction protection for single family homes, that was because so many of our single family homes are actually renting to two or three families at a time. Right. It, and that overcrowding has led to spread of the virus. And it also leads to a precarious housing situation. And so it's much more likely that you're going to fall into homelessness when your name's not on the lease. You're just renting a back room. You know, you you don't have the same protections of somebody whose name is on the lease or, you know, owns the property. And so that precariousness, whether it's because a family or an individual is paying too much from their total income for rent. So that would be someone who's rent burdened. And we have over, um, our last LASA report said over 700,000 households who are paying far too much far too much of a percentage of their total income for rent. So those are folks who then are likely to fall into homelessness. And then we also have great numbers of people who are in overcrowded situations. So why is it so hard to build? I think downzoning contributed to it. I think a lot of the polarizing dialogue that we started with in this conversation has ended up around land use conversations. Right. So it's very polarizing when you talk about density. You can immediately have someone feel threatened that you're going to take away their single family home instead of thinking about, well, no, there's there's some obvious places where density makes sense in commercial corridors and transit corridors. Right. So that I, I think has led to this, you know, sort of polarization. But the fundamental thing we lifted up in the report is that we have a, you know, SCAG, which is the Southern California Association of Governments. We have these regional metrics that are set, um, that are regional uh, housing uh, goals, and nobody's meeting them. You know, we set these goals, or not we, but the these association of governments. So everyone from, you know, the mayor of the city of LA to mayors of other cities, come together and set housing goals, but we aren't meeting those housing goals. And we have to come together and figure out how we can make it easier build housing. And I think it's doable. I have a, a great project that I worked on with Supervisor Solis that's going to open in about a month. And it is in downtown LA. And she you know, passed the motion to start work on it in um, late September. And then in October, you know, they signed a contract with a contractor and it's opening in about a month. Um, We were able to reuse containers um, that were changed and turned into modular housing. And they're being stacked into three stories. 
and it's a total of 232 units and it's being built in about five months time at a cost of about 200,000 per unit. So it, it can be done. And I think we just have to sort of put our shoulder into it and, and work collectively to build consensus to get it done. Right. You know, when you say 200,000 a unit, I, I think the numbers going around right now that um, the cost of an affordable housing unit, 500,000, 550,000. I mean, we're, we're definitely getting something wrong when, when that's the cost of an affordable place for somebody to live. To be able to do what you've done here, put together some creative solutions that don't take decades and doesn't cost a million dollars for two units. Right. That means you've found that sweet spot of, of opportunity to get creative and, and we need more of that creativity. Um, when we look at the numbers on the housing shortage and the housing deficit, you bring up the SCAG numbers, the RENA numbers, and that cities are not meeting them. You know, you, I'm so glad you brought up the history of redlining. Um, the fact that there was, in fact, a codified policy on divestment of areas where people of color lived. I hear a lot that housing policy is racist. And then I hear people say, well, well, I'm not a racist. I may you know, work on a city planning staff or I may be on a city council. I myself am not racist, but the housing policies, while not intending to be racist, perhaps they promote segregation. Um, what are some of the steps that somebody can do if you think that there is a way for community to confront whether or not their own land use policy uh, perpetuates segregation? This may seem like a sort of maybe an interesting answer, but you know, one of the things that I do is I myself sort of try to partake in what I call being a secret shopper. You know, I try and dig in and say, okay, I, I'm going to follow this person, this, this client or this resident, I'm going to help them go through the process. So instead of just sort of looking at policy from the 60,000 foot level, I do think it's really important to um, have some firsthand knowledge of how people are experiencing those policies on the other end and, and how they're experiencing them when they are black or brown. And right. so I have actually you know, worked with folks and seen, seen how some hurdles that on their face have no uh, implications with respect to race, but in terms of their application, can and do, and they do for a variety of reasons. I mean, fundamentally, just look at the numbers. If 8.6% of the population is black in Los Angeles County and 34% of people experiencing homelessness are black, and if you're experiencing homelessness, you're 17 times more likely to get arrested. And when you're then applying to sign that your name, the dotted line on that lease, and they're going to do uh, you know, a criminal background check or other type of check, you're going to have a harder time signing that lease, period. Right. right. And, and so it's, there's so many reasons that, you know, that our policies have had a disproportionate effect on um, Black people. And there's a fabulous report, again, that my colleague Jacqueline Wagner led, which is an ad hoc committee from the LASA Commission, 
on Black people experiencing homelessness. And you can find that on our LASA website at LASA.org. And it really helped to really just get at all these different points in this system that are not doing right by people. And most importantly, not doing right by vulnerable people, people exiting, you know, institutions of any kind, whether it's foster care or the jail system. You know, I, I just want to encourage everybody listening. The, um, the No Going Back LA report is a fantastic read. It covers so many different policy areas, police reform, transportation, housing, homelessness. Um, it, it runs such a wide gamut, but it all comes back to equity and and racial justice and you know sarah we've gone in a lot of different directions but one thing i'm really curious to know from you you you've had some victories that you've reminisced with us fondly about you've helped implement some groundbreaking work i loved hearing your story about the reusing shipping containers uh, for this development in la you've got so much policy experience and you were part of such a, a groundbreaking study here in this report if you could implement one thing, if you could decide there is one rule, one ordinance, one law that you would enact to create a more equitable and just society, what would that be? You know, there's a lot in this report that um, I, I recommend folks look at, but I would have to lift up um, as something that relates to housing and homelessness. And for me, it would be treating housing as a public good. Um, and treating housing as public infrastructure. So there are plenty of countries that do that, um, Singapore being one of them, uh, I believe Finland. There are a lot of countries that approach access to housing as a civil right uh, within their community. And corollary to that is that housing for those who can't afford it is treated as infrastructure. And so the same way we work on infrastructure projects, the gold line and other transportation projects, or we work on access to water, access to housing is really a fundamental right. And there are other states that have actually done this, but I believe, you know, our state could adopt housing as a, um, as one of our rights. That's wonderful. Sarah, this has been such an amazing interview. I just want to, first of all, just take the chance to say thank you for not only the time to talk today, but also for being a part of this MPA Advisory Council. I think that having you on board is such a tremendous uh, credit to this university. And to be able to chat with you about the report, you know, your experience in policy, how you got involved in public service, what motivates you, um, and what you hope we, we do going forward has been such a tremendous uh, blessing for me. And Dr. Jordan, I invite any comments from you. Yeah, Sarah, thank you so much for our students who, who we, we groom to be practitioner scholars to hear such concrete examples of how you bring clarity, courage, and consensus together and some really complex problems grounded with this notion of eliminating racism and creating more rights for people. I, I'm just excited for them to hear what you've had to say today. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So and so Sarah, before we wrap up, tell me, what are you working on moving forward and where can people find you? I am working on what I call governance reform. So our next step is we have an action committee from the Greater LA Committee. 
And we are trying to lift up reforms around how we approach homelessness and housing production. So stay tuned. I'm sure you're going to be hearing a lot more about potential ideas to create that regional accountability around housing production and more regional accountability around getting people into housing and seeing housing as a human right. That is awesome. Sarah, thank you for that. This has been a a wonderful conversation. Uh, We can't uh, thank you enough and look forward to doing it again. And to everybody in the audience, thank you again for being with us. This has been uh, Jed Talks. I'm your host, Jed Liano, signing off for me and my co-host, Audrey Jordan. Uh, Appreciate you being with us. And uh, Sarah Dussault, a real pleasure again. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Jed. Appreciate it. Bye. So Audrey, that was just an outstanding interview with Sarah Dussault, who, you know, we learned from her vast resume. She's, she's done so many different jobs in policy and government, but um, her work at the Committee for a Greater LA is really standing out to me. Would love to hear what stood out to you. Would love to hear from you, your thoughts on that interview. Yeah, Jed, I was, I was really quite taken by her description of um, the engagement and the um, policy development, um, the plat- platform around no going back in that report and how, you know, it was clear that it was cross-cutting education, health, housing, and they were working on this, foundations, government people, and then George Floyd happened. And it just changed. It was like a paradigm shift for everybody. And all of a sudden, it got so clear that the cross-cutting feature of all of this was anti-racist policy action and working across sectors, keeping focused on that became the raison d'etre for the work that they were doing. And that was so clear in her conviction. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Sarah's a really exciting uh, person. When you hear her talk, you can really hear the passion in her voice. This work is obviously very personal to her. Mm. Um, From the very beginning of our interview, uh, the thing that really stood out to me is her telling the story of her brother who who dealt with homelessness. And the really telling moment in the interview we had with her was when she said, I'm doing all of this work at LASA, creating programming for homelessness, and I'm fighting to create all of these things that I couldn't even provide for my own brother. Mm. Um, that moment of humility mm. and how it affected her personally what got her into this work. Uh, everyone has a personal story, uh, but few are as, as hard hitting as that one. A real moment of humility and a real window into the motivation behind all of her work. Um, I'm glad that we were, had the wonderful opportunity to talk with, uh, with Sarah and Audrey, always a pleasure to be with you again. And, you know, I'm so proud of the work that we're doing at Claremont Lincoln. The ability to bring all of these leaders who are really on the front lines of change making and policy and government, the fact that we have the ability to have these conversations to share with our students and with the community, the work that all these folks are doing, to me really drives home the the message of developing ethical and socially conscious leaders. And, And that's why I'm so proud to be a part of this. Okay, everybody, thanks for being with us today. This is your host, Jed Liano. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Jedcast.